This episode of Breaking Brave is brought to you by Soul Snacks. Soul Snacks are single ingredient, eco-conscious dog and cat treats sourced directly from farms in Ontario and wrapped in fully compostable packaging. Treating your pets never felt so good. Use coupon code BREAKINGBRAVE for 15% off on soulsnacks.ca. That's soulsnacks.ca. This episode is also brought to you by Crank Coffee, the newest member of the Neal Brothers family. Crank Coffee is a new Canadian whole bean coffee brand that is certified organic and fair trade, founded by the Neal Brothers, Peter and Chris. This brand was influenced by cycling, coffee lovers, and experts. Check it out at the Neal Brothers online shop and use our coupon code BRAVE for 20% off your first Crank Coffee purchase. Enjoy. Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. Zarka Nawaz is a Canadian creator and producer for film and television. She's a published author, a public speaker, a journalist, and a former broadcaster. She's the creator of the hysterical and very famous Little Mosque on the Prairie. But we're not talking about that today. We are talking about the fabulous new novel that she has just published and released, entitled Jamila Green Ruins Everything. It is a novel that is so brave, zany, daring, and hilarious. Exactly what you'd expect from my friend, my guest, my colleague. Please welcome Zarka Nawaz. I am so excited to introduce our audience to the one, the only, Zarka Nawaz. Zarka is a famous woman all over the world, but famous, I think, mostly for Little Mosque on the Prairie, but more recently famous for Jamila Green Ruins Everything. Welcome, welcome, Zarka. It is my honor to have you join us today on Breaking Brave. Oh, thank you for having me on. That was such a lovely introduction. Before we actually started recording, I was telling Zarka that I've been on airplanes over the last couple of days and enjoying reading compulsively, by the way, your book, Jamila Green Ruins Everything, and laughing hysterically out loud. And the people around me were looking at my screen on the plane saying, what's she watching? What's she's wa- what is she watching? And I just held up the cover and waved it to everybody saying, you got to read this book. It's fantastic. So every interviewer starts with this. I hate to be obvious. Can you just give us your 25-cent tour of what's this about? Jamila Green Ruins Everything. As I'm gripping onto it, like this is one of these books that I will never lend to anybody because I'm afraid I won't get it back. (laughs) Jamila Green is a woman who has suffered a terrible tragedy. And as a result, she's having a lot of trouble being empathetic with other human beings. And she has just published her memoir, And she believes that God owes her big time for what he has taken away from her life. And that book should go to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And when her book book launch goes disastrously wrong, she decides that she needs more, uh, you know, a more, like a stronger way to coerce God to get her what she wants. So she goes to the local imam at the mosque and says, why isn't God listening? And the poor imam is this young, innocent 
man who has just arrived from Egypt and he's quite appalled at her behavior. And he detects right away that something has happened to her and she's suffering. And the only way he can help her heal is if she learns to stop feeling like a victim herself and help other people. And so he tells her that you must help a homeless person in order to get God to listen to you. And so they start off on this adventure to the park to help a homeless man. And that's where this whole story begins of how things start to unravel. And they unravel in a way that helps Jamila come to terms with her pain and her faith and her family and herself. And she has to go on this incredible international spy adventure to finally become a whole person again. And it's a really crazy, nutty story, (laughs) but she has to kind of go through it all in order to find herself and find, you know, her, her healing and her way back to her faith and her, her community. I had no idea how to take hold of this book when I first started going through reading the first couple of pages. I found parts of it funny, but it was a a pretty serious topic. So I wasn't really sure if I was allowed to find it funny. You are brave, Zarka. You are brave because basically this is a satirical novel about ISIS. It is, yes. (laughs) And the Muslim community and women within the Muslim community and the Middle East and how many doors or publishers or, or, or no's did you get? There were a lot of, yeah, the original publisher did, did, did reject it. It was a hard sell, I will not lie, because um, people didn't know what to make of it. And they just thought it was just too over the top um, and really wanted to know if I even had to have the character go to the Middle East. But I felt it was a story that had to be told. And so it took six years of rewrites and rewrites and rewrites because it probably was too heavy with the research and the background information about the Middle East. But, you know, it was just like Jamila, it was an act of faith where you're just thinking, you know, you just have to be patient and then hope for the best and have faith in the book. And in the end, it worked out and it was published. And here we are. And Simon and Schuster published it. And, and, God bless them because it is phenomenal. Thank you. Yes, they, I mean it was two editors, one in um, in the U.S. and one in from with Harper Collins and and Lori Grassi with Simon and Schuster here in Canada. In the U.S., it was Pilar, and the two of them and Angela um, Ledgerwood. The, you know, listening to the women, they had sent me this lovely letter. You know, explaining what they thought the book was about and how wonderful it was. And it was this incredible affirmation that, okay, so I wasn't wrong. Because, <laughs> you know, sometimes you'd be like, am I, am I wrong? Like, have I really gone off into left field with this book? Because it's, you know, going in so many zany directions. But I felt in the end, the story came together and, and, and told the story that I wanted to tell. It was um, a satire about ISIS, but it was also a, a woman's journey back to her her faith. And and I wanted people to read it and feel like a sense of hope that even when terrible things happen to you and you feel so much pain and anguish um, and you don't think anything is working out in your life, that that if you just hang in there and you have faith, it will it will work out. And 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 that not to give up, not to give up to despair. Really, was the message of the book. 
And and talk about timely. I, I mean, obviously with COVID, but obviously obviously also what's going on in in Ukraine, which you know we can kind of parallel in a moment. But I felt that journey when I was reading the book, and I thought you don't have to be of any specific faith to feel the faith journey that the individual um, Jamila is taking as she goes through there. Because I think everybody in the world is like, come on, I said a prayer, don't I deserve this by now? And yet the answer was categorically, no, you got more work to do. And when you do the work, it's going to come out and the sun's going to come out at the at the other end. So it's not just for Muslim faith, it's anybody questioning their relationship with faith, I think. No, you're right. Like, like a lot of times we feel like we deserve it. We deserve success. We deserve happiness. We deserve all these things. But it's hard to be grateful for what you have and to acknowledge what you have. And that was the great lesson for me in this book was that I was kind of going through the same arc that Jamila was going through. And I felt I deserved a lot more than I was getting because I had just written my memoir and it hadn't gone to the New York Times bestseller list. And it, you know, I was really angry and bitter about that. And I felt like God owes me. Like, I don't understand why God gives so many things to so many other people. <laughs> and I'm the one who's praying all the time. And so I, it was kind of, it was kind of like this journey that I had to go on um, and realize that I you know, wasn't doing the work, that I wasn't being grateful for what I had, that I was becoming too internal in terms of um, navel gazing and feeling sorry for myself and viewing myself as a victim. And, you know, I kind of had to go through that whole cycle that you have to you have to break out of that and you have to look at what you do have in this world. And it's incredible. And it's it's so easy for those of us who are privileged to just feel like, oh, it's not enough. And why don't we have more and not be grateful for what you have? And it's a terrible thing to say, but you become, it takes, sometimes it takes like a war in, in Ukraine to look at those people and say, wow, in a heartbeat, it can all just disappear overnight. And who are we to be complaining about what we have when those poor people have, you know, it's all gone. And it's a lesson to be learned. The memoir is called Laughing All the Way to the Mosque. It is, yes. And it didn't make it to the New York Times <laughs> bestseller list. Well, maybe now it will, because I'm hoping that everybody will read, watch, imbibe on everything you've ever produced and are about to produce. Um, I got to believe that's why it felt so raw is the wrong word, but emotional to me because you and Jamila were walking hand in hand through this journey of self-discovery or... Yeah, you know, I think it's easy to be grateful to God when things are going well, but when things don't go well, that's when we're like, oh, do you really exist? Oh, do you really care about me? Oh, do you really... You know what I mean? Like all those doubts and recriminations start to happen. And I was having to go through this journey where to learn that sometimes you have to go through hardship in order to become a better person and to become a more empathetic person towards others, because I think it humbles you when you go through a really difficult time. And then you become more connected to other people who are suffering because you've gone through suffering. So you know what it's like. And, and, it, and, 
you know, like in Islam, like God is very open about suffering. Like the verses in the Quran are very clear. They're like, I will test you. I will test you with loss of labor, loss of life, you know, loss of goods, like like loss. And those who are patient and persevere and seek help, you know, through that patience and through prayer, you know, and through and through and and it's hard and it says in the in the Quran it'll and that's hard for people unless you're humble unless you're a humble mm. person and I didn't really understand those things um, truly and I thought what does that mean like to be patient and and to pray and to be humble like what what do those things really mean and how do you do that and so that's what Jamila was trying to learn in this book is how do you do that. And I know it sounds crazy to then to do it in the structure of a satire about ISIS. Because when I was writing the book and I was going through all these things emotionally, ISIS suddenly appeared in the horizon. <laughs> it was 2014 and I'm like, oh no. And then, you know, I feel like we're always losing the PR game, Muslims, because, you know, Bill Maher, remember he he said in, in, in on his show, well, you know, there's 1.6 mus- million Muslim, billion Muslims in the world. And there must be some connective tissue with them and, and ISIS's savage practices. And I was like, no, no, how can you just, how can you say that? Like, and people could get away with saying things like that about Muslims um, in that time period and just assume that we're all painted with one brush and and who they are is just a natural thing that Muslims gravitate towards, you know, jihad and radical violence and, and, and we're all, our religion, you know, asks for us to do things like this. And I was like, no there's more to this story and there's more to this group. And I feel like someone has to tell the story of how ISIS came to be. What was the background? And nobody knew at that time because it was such a confusing time, you know, for this group to come out. Nobody understood it in the newspapers and everyone was scrambling. And so I thought this would be a really good way of me to understand this group and then explain it and also try to understand you know, the the character I had created, Jamila, her journey. And so as I started writing, I didn't write with a plan. It just sort of evolved. And then I, I was like, oh my God, she has to join this group and go to the Middle East and become part of this and figure out how to get out of it. And and it sort of, so those two issues kind of melded together in the book, which is why it's so, like it sort of takes a, suddenly this turn. <laughs> because a lot of people who read the book thought it was going to be about something else entirely. <laughs> no, but I love that. Please share with the audience, if it's not a spoiler alert, I hope it's not a spoiler alert, that obviously, or maybe not so obviously, you didn't call ISIS ISIS in the book, but your <laughs> your name, I'll maybe say it, and then maybe you can say what the acronym is, the Dominion of the Islamic Caliphate and Kingdom, which stands for? Dick. <laughs> so the original, Dick. the original <laughs> title of the book, in fact, was The Rise and Fall of Dick. And the publisher let me get away with it for months. And then finally they said, no, we have to brainstorm a new title because that is not going to really help us for marketing <laughs> purposes. <laughs> they felt like people were going to get the wrong images when they Googled the title. And so it was changed, much to my, much to my children's disappointment, bitter, bitter disappointment. And throughout the book, you, you weave some very, very clever humor around that. Let me go there. Zarka, humor. You are funny. Oh, thank you. I was hysterically laughing when I was reading your book. So where did comedy come from in your life, perhaps in your upbringing? Or how how did that become part of your DNA? It's so interesting. A lot of people ask me that. I just feel that I have always gravitated to the absurd 
in any situation. And it's always helped me process what's going on in the world. And the the more painful and the more difficult the issue is, the funnier it gets for me. My brain just sort of twists it and turns it. And I feel like it helps me cope and digest it and and figure out what to do about it and how to think about it. And, um, and that's why I feel like I have always gravitated towards comedy. I don't, I don't know if I could really write drama very well. I mean, comedy is supposed to be drama, but taken to like a heightened level of absurdity. And in the end, I think what ends up helping me is it helps me connect with people because I don't think anyone would want to read a 300 page book about the history of the Middle East and ISIS and Al Qaeda and the Taliban, but they would love, you know, to read a comedy about, you know, a hapless woman who gets involved in an international spy, you know, adventure, because that's more fun. And then, and then to laugh and enjoy themselves. And then, and then later say, Hey, you know, I actually learned a few things about American foreign policy (laughs) and how it has impacted, you know, the Middle East and and the Muslim world. Um, And I think it's a really great tool to use to help people communicate with each other and, and to let their guard down and be able to hear one another. Absolutely perfectly put, uh, Zarka, because I found myself learning things, but it it didn't feel like I was learning things. It didn't feel like I was reading a textbook about blah, 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 where you just like, oh, this is too brutal. I can't put it down. It's more of an active learning where you're laughing and you're enjoying yourself and you're following the story and you can't wait to find out what happens next and turn to the next page. But yet, as you're going through it, it's like, wait, I didn't know that. And wait, I didn't know that. And wait, I really didn't know that. And at the end, there's this great joy of, I so love the book. But I also felt like, good for you, Zarka. You educated me on a whole bunch of things that I honestly didn't know. And I probably would never have gone out and made a conscious attempt to learn. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because some of the things I learned through the research was just shocking, you know, like the fact that the U.S. had spent millions in creating primary learner, like books for little children to learn math, but it was really about killing people and jihad being a primary part of their faith, which it wasn't because Muslims hadn't been on a jihad for over a century. And, but the Americans wanted to introduce that concept to little kids and wanting them to associate violence with their faith and essentially indoctrinated them with these books that they had sent from the U.S. to madrasas in in Afghanistan. And that those kids grew up to be the Taliban. And so people like complain about the Taliban and how dare they be so violent and it's got to do with Islam and you people, you people. I'm like, wait a minute. Like you have to understand mm-hmm. the history of how that group formed and who they were and what this war did to Afghanistan and what it, like it devastated this country because the Americans wanted... Russia to face their own Vietnam. So they radicalized men from all over the world and caused this hardline interpretation of Islam to spread, you know, after the war was over and how much it, it, you know, affected the Muslim world after that. And those are things people don't know. No, especially people who are not of that faith, not, you know, BIPOC individuals may be more in tune, but here I sit as a white born and raised Canadian I mean, I, I only know what I get from the news. That that sounds like a really lame blonde woman statement, but I trust that. I shouldn't trust that, maybe, obviously, but 
I was just so enthralled in learning something I really didn't know and in a way that I so enjoyed because I so enjoyed the humor part of it. So it's brilliant. But humor runs through everything you've done, Zarka. Now, we'll come back to Jamila for sure because this is all about Jamila and the book, but Little Mosque on the Prairie, I mean, it's award-winning, 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 and I've got all of the awards written here on my wall. But you have this inside of you to write comedy in books, but also to 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 produce comedy on television. Yeah, we just we just finished a web series that will be on TV, um, CBC Gem on May thirteenth, hopefully. Um, and it's a, another comedy, so I've I branched out into acting. <laughs> I saw it. So let, let's go down that road for a second before we come back to Jamila and the novel. I can't wait. The little trailers that I saw online, it's called Zarka, so it's named after you, and you star in it. If I do it justice, here we go. It's about a divorced Muslim woman trying to re-enter the world in terms of dating in Canada. Yes? Yeah, so her ex gets remarried and posts a very callous um, post online showing him with his, you know, yoga instructor. New person. Yes, who's half the age. <laughs> yoga instructor, half the age. Yeah, okay. you know, like the blow and then the, the remarks quickly come up. A nice upgrade. Does the ex know? Are you going to invite her? And of course, she gets her back up. And, and so she decides to tell her ex that, yes, she in fact will be there with her boyfriend, Brian, the brain surgeon. <laughs> Who's that? Because her because her ex is a podiatrist, a foot doctor, and he had always wanted to be a brain surgeon. So she knows that this is one way of getting back at him. So she figures if he's going to show off with his little young trophy, she'll bring her trophy, and then they'll compete trophy to trophy. So it's a comedy about this woman who's trying to, you know, struggle with a divorce, you know, life post divorce. Um, but but this but but her vindictive personality keeps getting in the way, and her impulsive you know, relationship with her ex. And so it's a comedy about poor Brian who actually does show up <laughs> and he wants to date her and have a relationship with her. He doesn't want to be revenge arm candy. So, and, but, but he picks the most boring dates possible, like birding. <laughs> so, and Zarka has to try to string him along so that she could get him to the wedding in time. And so it's a comedy about this woman and her adventures in dating. I can't wait. How did it feel for you to be in front of the camera and behind the camera, I assume, because you've got a huge behind-the-scenes group, directors, producers, BIPOC women mostly. You were obviously involved in the entire creation of it, but you're also starring in it. So how does it feel to sort of be wearing an awful lot of hats in this? It was a lot of work. I had a really strong and wonderful team with me. Clara Rostan was the executive producer. She was one of the writers on Little Mosque. Liz Whitmere was one of our producers, um, fantastic director. And she herself is an actor, so she gave me a lot of support. Uh, Don Bird is a producer in Saskatchewan who understood um, the industry in Saskatchewan. And so I had this very strong female team that came around me and supported me and I couldn't have done it without them. And we worked together, you know, two years uh, to get this show made. And now it's going to be out there on CBC Gem. So I'm really proud of it. I, I did, was really worried about acting, but, you know, Claire and Liz were quite adamant that I do it. And so I took acting lessons for a year and 
And then, you know, you can kind of see like the beginning, like, like the acting, you could actually see the evolution of my acting in the six episodes, <laughs> getting, you know, kind of rocky at the beginning and slowly by the end, you can see me getting more comfortable with it. And, and I have to say, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. I didn't think Great. I was going to, because it was so scary to do that, but I really did enjoy it. And I, you know, hope to do more of it if I can in the future. What about Jamila Green? What has the response been to this incredible book? Have you had fantastic reviews? Have you had people saying, I have no idea what this is about? I don't get it. What's the, what's the general? Has it, it's been released in Canada. Has it been released in the United States? It comes out in the U.S. on May 10th. Okay. You're going to have a busy May, lady. Yeah, I could have a busy May. The re- yeah, the reviews have been so interesting because people are like, are we allowed to laugh? Like, is this yeah. funny? Yeah. You know, and, some, and some Muslims were a little unhappy with me. They're like, really? Like, why do we even have to use the word terrorism anymore? Can't we just, you know, never go back there? And I was like, listen, if we have to acknowledge what happened in the past so that we can't keep making the same mistakes over and over again, and sometimes we have to use that word, but I feel like the narrative of danger is shifting because of everything that's happened, you know, like in Canada with the white truckers and the convoy to Ottawa. And for the first time, I started hearing the words terrorist and radical extremists being given to white men, which had never mm. happened mm. before. And I think for reporters, it was a huge shock to to see that 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 there was another group of people who were causing harm to people in our country and they weren't Muslims. And that for so long, the narrative has just been like black and brown people and Muslims. And and now it's been shifting to white extremists, you know, and, and some of these groups are like Nazis and KKK and the Proud Boys and 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 they're growing, you know, in numbers and organization. And, and I think that has caught the media off guard and they don't know what to do with that because they were never aware that this danger existed. So I feel that there's more scope for um, people saying, okay, if we call Muslims terrorists in this book, in in this one, we're not painting the entire group by this brush because now we realize there's this other group that's coming up and that we have to acknowledge that this is a huge danger. And I had written an op-ed in the Globe and Mail about this, that it was almost like our fairy godmother kind of you know, waved her magic wand and said, you guys will not carry the burden of the word terrorist anymore. It will now shift to another group of people. And and the media is noticing. And and I think they're getting their comeuppance in some regard for not having been more aware of this other group that's been existing. And so that was a that article got me a lot of attention because I think people weren't ready to admit that shift had happened. Mm. And and were a little bit embarrassed by the fact that they, you know, were caught off guard by that. We don't want terrorists of any description in the world, but it's not fair to just use one big brush against the Muslims and say, well, they're terrorists and the rest of us are all good people. And after what went on in the United States on January 6th, I think that the world is starting to see that. So, Zarka, where can we where can we find this? How can we support you? Where can we buy this? Jamila Green ruins everything. I, and we're not ending by any means. I just I just want to call it out now so that people can get it, order it, support it, review it, however we can help you with this. 
Well, it's in all independent bookstores. It's in Indigo. Um, people can order it online from Simon & Schuster. Uh, it's on Amazon. Basically everywhere. Fantastic. And then in the States after May 10th. And yes, in, in on May 10th, it'll be available in the U.S. as well. Fantastic. And so where did this desire to become a writer come from inside you, Zarka? I mean, you... You were doing things in television with Little Mosque on the Prairie, but then you went to laughing all the way to laughing all the way to the mosque, which was the memoir, and now this. Did you always have it in your heart that you wanted to write books as well? You know what? I think growing up as a daughter of immigrant parents, there was this big, big push to be a doctor and to be this, you know, a professional because my parents had come from you know, such upheaval after India and Pakistan were separated by the British and and the 1947 separation had resulted in my parents having to leave India and move to Pakistan, which meant like what happened to a lot of, what's happening to people in Ukraine, having to flee as refugees and leave everything behind. And there was so much trauma at that time. And when my parents made it here to Canada, I think for my father, it was really important that his kids become really well-educated because he felt that you could lose everything in a heartbeat, you know, your job and your land and your home, but education was something that you could carry with you. And it was um, a barrier to poverty. And so he really pushed us to become doctors. And that was a big push. And in retrospect, you know, I can understand why he had that desire because it was for security, economic security. But I, I think I had always gravitated towards writing and comedy and storytelling from the beginning. And I you know it was always there underneath, you know, all, all the science courses. And my best friend at the time was always talking about going in, you know, writing a book and going to Ryerson for filmmaking. And but I always thought that was sort of you know, the sexy careers that were forbidden to conservative Muslim women. But then when I didn't get into medical school, I was like, (laughs) oh no, I don't have a plan B. What am I going to do with my life? And, but then I realized that the School of Journalism program at Ryerson, they were still accepting applications. So I quickly applied and they accepted, you know, me for an interview. And they said, why is it that you have a science degree and not a BA? Because everyone that's applying has a BA. And I and I said, well, you know, I knew this was going to be a very competitive program, so I got a science degree instead, so I could compete and be able to write articles for you with knowledge. And they were so impressed by my, you know, planning abilities that they let me in. And I was so fortunate because I'd had no portfolio to speak of. And so I got into journalism school, and there I found myself blossoming as a writer. But even then, I felt like. I wasn't able to really tap into this creative itch that I was feeling. And I had gotten an internship with Peter Zosky's show, Morningside, oh. at the time with CBC Radio. Yeah. And, it, and my instructor had been Stuart McLean oh. from the Vinyl Cafe. Yeah. And he had been teaching radio production. And he he had introduced me to Peter Zosky. And I was placed in his show because I had won an award at the Ontario Telefest Award Ceremony for Journalism Students. And so I was working there, and I could tell right away that even though he was the best in the world for what he was doing, he was the one having fun. 
you know, with all these interviews mm-hmm. on CBC radio and I was interviewing people and giving him all the questions. And so I asked a friend of mine, I go, how do you become a filmmaker? Because in retrospect, I probably should have gone into filmmaking or have taken a creative writing degree. And I didn't now, you know, it was two degrees in, I didn't want to do a third degree. And they said, go, go to the Ontario College of Art and make, take a course in how to make a short film and figure out if you can do this. So I did that. I, I took the course and I made a short film called Barbecue Muslims. And it was about the Oklahoma bombing that had happened, about how everyone blamed Muslims and, you know, they were taking them off planes as suspects. And then two days later, Timothy McVeigh was arrested. And it was the largest domestic terror incident in the U.S. And so I thought, wow, isn't this interesting that Muslims were being blamed for something that a white man did? Mm-hmm. And nobody even questioned it, even in the media for the longest time. And so I made a comedy about Muslims who were sleeping one night and the barbecue blows up in their backyard and they're immediately accused of being Middle Eastern terrorists. And they're like, we haven't even been to the Middle East. And that launched my career as a filmmaker and a writer uh, that could take political issues and turn them into comedy. And from there, I've been making television and film and writing books ever since. Brilliant. Was your dad alive when you didn't make it into medical school? (laughs) Yeah, my father's still alive. I think for him, it was important that a woman be able to fulfill her potential and not get sidetracked with marriage and babies. Because it was always his viewpoint that a lot of women lost their careers to children and to motherhood. And, you know, he came from a generation where he didn't realize that men and husbands and partners could also help (laughs) A woman achieve our dreams. <laughs> you can be part of the journey if you so choose. Yeah, I know. So I think he was just glad that he saw his daughter because I was his only daughter fulfill her ambitions and her dreams. And and for my mom, she just wanted me to get married and have kids, could care less about that stuff. But I think that she did realize that that was really, really important to me. Um, And as long as, you know, I didn't get divorced and the kids didn't go sideways, I think both of them are happy. (laughs) Excellent. Which is so far hanging in there. (laughs) All right. And you've got four kids. So mom's happy because you've got four kids. Yeah, mom is happy because now she wants me to get the daughters married. And so now it starts all over again, the cycle, uh, you know. So I, my husband always jokes with me. He's like, oh, you married me to escape your mom. I'm like, I did not escape because social media has been created and she understands how to use FaceTime. <laughs> and now she's on me every week going, why are they still single? Why are you not doing something? And I'm like, I can't do anything. It's up to them to decide. And so I go, I, you know, there's no escape. <laughs> Arranged marriages is not really part of the conversation here, mom. Can't do that. No, no. And she's like, well, you could do other things. You could like, you know, find guys and introduce them. I'm like, "Ah, where? Show me where. (laughs) As if they would even listen to me. (laughs) And so, and so, yes, we begin the whole cycle all over again. (laughs) Your kids, Zarka, must be very proud of you. I think, yeah. I mean, they have a kooky mom who does kooky things. Um, but I think they're, you know, they're happy that I'm busy and happy and not complaining, you know, about what's happening with my career. So, and, and I think they enjoy watching the show and reading the books. And they're my harshest critics, which is good. It keeps me humble. Excellent. Always should be that way. Absolutely. And so are your parents living in Canada? Because you... They are living in Ontario. Yeah. Okay. So they're not in Saskatchewan where you live. No, a marriage Excellent. and a man brought me here, as most women will tell you in Saskatchewan. <laughs> it's like, really, it's not my choice. But <laughs> but Saskatchewan has a rich history of filmmaking and creativity 
until I understand the Saskatchewan government took away like the film tax credit. And then it's sort of that whole industry just withered away. Yeah, it was very sad. We, you know, Little Mosque on the Prairie and Corner Gas happened in Saskatchewan. And in many ways, one can argue that they created a renaissance of Canadian television because both networks, CBC and CTV, you know, rival networks had these two number one hits on each show. And it gave the confidence to the industry and the training to the writers in the industry that we could do comedic shows. And from there, you saw, a, you know, a rich array of shows arriving, Schitt's Creek and Kim's Convenience and um, all sorts of shows came out. And and then I don't think the government at the time understood how important the industry was and how much they had built up because of, you know, those two shows. And they made a decision 10 years ago to ax the tax credit. But just um, a few weeks ago, I was, you know, at budget, I was asked to go and they gave $8 million to the industry. It's not a lot, but it is definitely a start and it allows people like me to make a show in Saskatchewan and not have to sell my IP to someone else in another in another province. So we are hoping bit by bit to regrow the industry and for it to come back. And so that's the hope. And this, you know, the Minister of Culture, Laura Ross, um, is, you know, definitely supportive of the industry. And I'm very grateful for her for the money that she infused into the province. And it's going to make hopefully um, a big difference in bringing production back. Agreed. It's a tragedy that it ever happened in the first place to have it taken away, but I'm glad to see they're seeing the light a little bit in terms of giving some money back to the industry. That's fantastic. It is. And so, Azarka, what's next for you? Obviously, May's a busy month with a lot <laughs> happening with Jamila Green Ruins, everything coming out in the United States, and then Zarka coming out here. So Jamila Green's May 10th and Zarka, the series, is coming out May 13th, but is there something out there on the horizon that you're looking at, thinking about, yeah, I've always wanted to do this? I would love to make the web series into a half hour. Right now, it's six episodes of 10 minutes each, which is really good for me to get back into television because it had been a while, you know, to to relearn some of my skills. And it helped a, a lot to bring, you know, the writers back on board and, and to break those stories. Uh, and so now that I have a strong concept... There's another leap in order to make go from a 10 minute to half an hour is like another conceptual leap because it just can't Mm -hmm. be about, you know, dating um, adventures. So I'm creating a woman who is trying to become the next Gwyneth Paltrow in terms of she wants to have a billion um, dollar career in the wellness industry. And to me, it's sort of an interesting concept because... A lot of the wellness industry has appropriated, you know, cultures, you know, from other places like yoga. And, and I thought, this is a woman who says, I'm, you know, as a brown woman, I want to be able to take back some of those um, cultural practices and sell them to white women at exorbitant prices and make a billion dollar industry like Gwyneth has. And she's my hero. And so I want to, I'm creating this woman who's building an industry. She has her own store, but she keeps getting sidetracked by her um, romantic exploits, you know, because of her ex and dating. And so I'm trying to combine like a workplace comedy, much like um, like a Kim's Convenience or a Superstore where people are, in, you know, in a workplace, but they're dealing with family and issues and romantic issues. And so I'm building out the concept into a half hour. My hope is that now Saskatchewan has more money, I can bring a television series here and help be part of rebuilding the industry. Um, my hope is to one day adapt the book, Jamila Green Ruins Everything, 
into a TV series and be able to act as Jamila. That would be awesome if I could do that. So those are my two immediate goals. Um, and right now I just want to survive May because May is going to be a really, really busy month. <laughs> it's better to have so much going on than not enough. So exactly. that's fantastic. Yes. And like Jamila, I'm very grateful. <laughs> I, I was going to ask you if you were going to act in the half an hour series as well of the woman. I who- hope to. It is my goal. My goal is to prove to a broadcaster that I can do it, which is why we made the short form series. Right. And and then to go forward with it in the half hour. That is the hope and the goal. Fantastic. It's Candy Fox who I was looking at. I was like, Candy Fox is a director that's been involved in your in your short films. Yep, she did. Um, she directed episode three and four of the web series. Okay, because I was I was listening to an interview with her and Moccasin Flats was something that she was involved in. Yes, and v- articulate woman, and you could just see. I had no idea, of course, until watching these things that there was such a huge culture, opportunity, strong, creative women in Saskatchewan. Thank you for you to bringing that to life. It was really important for us to have all female directors and and to make sure it was diverse. You know, we had a, a Muslim woman, Iman Zahwari, do the first ep- first two episodes. Candy Fox did the uh, three and four. And then Liz Whitmere did five and six and brought us home with those. And, you know, and we had a female uh, DP team. Gabriella Oslo was our DP and second camera, we also had a woman, Tara Mulis. We were really, really fortunate to have females in really in strong positions because women have to support women, especially in the technical industry, where typically, you know, it's always gone to the boys. So we had we were really lucky to have very strong females come in and and you know help make this show a reality. Absolutely. So. I believe that Jamila slash Zarka is a very <laughs> is, is a very brave woman. But let me tie it back to the whole theme of what's bravery to you, Zarka? What does it look like, feel like, sound like just right off the top out of your gut? It's a it's a hard question. I have, you know, every morning I wake up and I have to gauge how I'm feeling. And it's always like why I'm, you know, if I'm feeling anxious or afraid, I'm like, why? Where is this feeling coming from? How do I overcome it? Um, how do I, you know, not succumb to fear and anxiety and become overwhelmed by those feelings? And so even this project was so big. And and I remember the advice, you know, to just break it down into small pieces and to, to go slowly, to find allies and people to help you and to treat those people well so they'll come back and help you more and and just to break down your day and your and your all the activities you have to do one by one and and to tackle them in small pieces and and so i think that's part of being brave is not to allow yourself to become overwhelmed because i i understand those issues of anxiety and fear and this is just too much because making television is just oh there's like a million dif- different pieces it's like being a ceo of a giant company and so and so that's what I have to teach myself is just, you know, break it down. Don't try to do everything alone. Have people beside you. You're, you know, it's too much for one person and, and to build a team and to treat your team well and, and to build that loyalty. And, and then good things will come. And they have. And I hope they continue to. I hope so, too. I was reading about your process of writing the book. 
do I start with an outline? No, I kind of meander and go and let it take its own life in a, in a, in a way in terms of it finding its way along the road. But the fact that you take it in small bites and you give yourself little treats. Yes, yes. I let myself online uh, shop <laughs> after a certain number of words have been written. Then I'm allowed to do that. I just find that your brain works while you're online shopping. And then you go back and you've kind of that problem that you can't solve, couldn't solve before you have a solution to. So I like to reward myself. And I've taught my kids that all my life. I mean, my kids would call from university and they were overwhelmed with, I have all these exams and I don't know where to start. And that anxiety and the pressure of everything, like a CEO of a company or producing an entire television series, if you look at it as its entirety, you're just frozen. So I'd say to my son specifically when he was going to McGill, inch by inch, So just, you know, do this, then go for a walk to Tim Hortons and get yourself a coffee and walk back. And to your point, what I teach in a lot of the work that I do is your subconscious is always working, whether you're aware of it or not. So if you're going for a walk and getting Tim's or you're online shopping, looking at some cute new shoes or whatever it is, that challenge that you have or that work you've done is still rolling. And it's often the best way to either solve it or embed it is to walk away from it for a little while. No, it's the best advice. And just to let people know, I'm not buying things every 10 minutes. <laughs> I'm allowed to look. Just look and then move, walk away because my kids pay close attention to the packages that come here. <laughs> and one has to watch the budget. So yeah, just to, just it's true to walk, even take a walk, just move away from the problem and then come back and revisit it. And, and don't get overwhelmed by it. It's easier to say because I totally understand mm. the whole issue of anxiety and worry and, oh, my God, it's so big. And But just start, just start, just start and just do it for five minutes if that's all you can handle. And then go away and then try to do it for 10 minutes. And, you know, it's like when you're trying to teach a baby to sleep. <laughs> you know the sleep <laughs> cry method where you let your baby in the room, you shut the door, let the baby cry for five minutes, then come back and stare at your baby Shut, leave the baby alone for 10 minutes, come back and stare at your baby, <laughs> leave your baby alone for 15 minutes. And by the time you reach half an hour, that baby's tired of crying and that baby will go to sleep. And then the next day when you try your sleep training again, you start with 10 minutes. And so it's exactly. that's how I train my babies to sleep at night. You just try a little bit, little that you and the baby can handle together. And the next thing you know, after like six years, you have a novel <laughs> and a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Are your kids pursuing anything creative as you have ended up? Or are they tell me they're all being doctors? Oh, mom, no, we're all going to medical yeah, school. Yeah, they're not doctors, but they've decided to pick solid kind of normal careers. The eldest <laughs> is doing a PhD. Hopefully, you know, will become a professor. The second one is doing um, studying physiotherapy in Scotland. Number three is being a social worker. And number four is an is studying engineering. So they've all picked kind of careers because they've kind of looked at me and they said, yeah, you know, we want just regular jobs with a regular paychecks as opposed to this one running around with their hair on fire <laughs> trying to figure out what's happening next. But yeah, no, they're good kids and 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 they're working hard. That's great to hear. I understand you've also done some stand-up comedy or tried your hand yeah. at or I found some things online about you doing stand-up comedy. Did you love it? Did you hate it? Was it fun? Is it horrible? It was what, so what? hard. It was so, so hard. It was good, though, to do because 
a lot of people who have television shows came from the stand-up world. Mm. And I always thought that I had gone into Little Moss kind of kind of backwards where I hadn't done that. And I thought it would be a really good training to sort of hone the comedy and to learn, you know, tighter joke writing techniques and performance. And it's good for acting and bravery and fighting anxiety and stress and worry. And so I did it and I was getting good at it. Uh, and then the pandemic happened and then it all stopped. Uh, and But then this opportunity came up to make um, a thriller for a hypothetical web series. <laughs> and so I asked Clara Ross Dunn, my friend from Little Mosque on the Prairie, if she would help me. And we worked together on it and we made the trailer. And from there, you know, the rest is history. We got, we cobbled together money to make the whole thing, you know, got a CBC license and, and now we're about to air in a month. Yay. So will you go back to stand up, do you think? No. <laughs> no, I will not. I think you have to pick a career. And I think stand up is one of those things that you really, hone by practice, 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 like, you know, showing up every day in front of an audience and do. And I think my love of creativity lies in storytelling in the written form and in the television form. So I feel like I have to make a decision of which of those two forms I'm going to pursue to perfection. And I feel it, um, th that it's better for me to stay in, in television and in publishing. But I enjoyed what I did. It was incredible. I learned so much and I have such respect and, you know, and awe and admiration for stand-up comedians. It's really hard. It's really hard. So yes. hard. Thank you. So, Zarka, how can we follow you, support you, become big fans? What are all the socials or how can we connect with you to make sure we're buying your books and watching your television series and, and doing everything we can to support your career? Well, you can buy Jamila Green Ruins Everything. And if you like that, I wrote a memoir, Laughing All the Way to the Mosque, and write great reviews on Goodreads because some people are a little confused <laughs> about the book. But the reviews are good. I shouldn't complain. They're very good. Um, and then tune in on, on May 13th and watch the series and tell your friends about it. I would love to hear your comments about that. I'm on Twitter, uh, Zarka Nawaz. I'm on Instagram, The Real Zarka. On Facebook, Zarka Nawaz. You can find me everywhere. I try to respond to everyone uh, as soon as I can. And I love hearing from people. So yeah, communicate with me. We will. We absolutely will. Please come back and see us again and tell us about how the future is going and all of the dreams and you're pursuing of all those dreams. And I am a fan and I cannot say enough about Jamila Green Ruins Everything. And I can't wait to tune in when you go live with your television series on May the 13th. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciated this. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time. <laughs>